In this episode, I have Jared Bloomgren on the show. He is a bow hunting maniac, and we cover hunting public land and how he consistently finds success, when to go slow, when to go fast, and a bunch of other things. You are listening to the Archery Maniacs Podcast. This is Remy Warren. I am Rihanna Carey. My name is Adam Foss. This is Paul Tetford professional archer hey everyone i'm christy titus and you are listening to archery maniac we cover everything archery from the hunting side to the tournament side with stories tips and tactics gear reviews and more that helped my tuning game so much when i made sure that all my arrows were square i'm just staring into his eyes blood's dripping off of its tines mud is everywhere the clarity these mavens offer is amazing i'm just like spider-man you know on this rock you know, just laying there <laughs> belly crawling in there and I can barely fit in there and I can hear the cat growling at me. So I put my hand on his shoulder and pushed him and we just ran at this elephant. You know, it's hunting public land is, it's become more of a challenge obviously over the last several years. You know, I think back when I first moved to South Dakota, 18 years ago, and even before that, when I was hunting North Dakota, finding a mature deer back then was quite a bit more easy than it is now. And what do you attribute that up to? You know, there's there's numerous factors, but um, public land has definitely become um, more populated than it has in the past. And I think that has caused a lot of these deer to spread their wings, if you will. They're they're moving away from areas that I used to find them into now more areas where you expect to find antelope. And a lot of times I you know, I'll come back from a long hike into some property and I'll get back to the vehicle and somebody will pull up and ask if I'm having any luck and most often they think that I'm hunting antelope and not mule deer or even whitetail. And these are places that only used to hold a pronghorn in the past. So, you know, animals adapt. And I think that's a lot of what these deer have been doing the last few years is they've been spreading out more than they used to. Uh, The more the rougher country that, that you used to expect to find them still holds the deer. But these areas away from the rough country, more out in the prairie anymore, is starting to hold more and more deer. And I've also found uh, a higher likelihood of finding mature deer out in the less obvious areas. You know, those mature deer are getting used to the pressure when they're young. If they live to be smart enough, they start to figure out where the pressure is and they move away from those areas. And, you know, granted, there's still going to be young deer out in those areas too, but... Some of your bucks that are there are going to be some of those older, more mature deer. And, you know, don't get me wrong, that rough country is still going to hold some of the mature deer too, but I think the likelihood of finding a more quality, obviously, is getting away from those beaten paths that everybody else goes. And it's it's like going to the grocery store at the end of the month and trying to get uh, uh, good tomatoes. You might look through 50 tomatoes, maybe if you're lucky, find one or two that's not bruised or beaten or been dropped or have soft spots. It's a lot like deer. Uh, There's times I've been on a hunt for several days on end and found some really nice bucks, but never found a mature buck. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just takes time to be in the field, I guess, and, and covering a lot of ground. And you know, it's definitely I never find a, a mature deer every time I'm out. But, you know, it's covering a lot of ground, I guess. It's huge. Yeah, I I agree. Because, I mean, you know, obviously there there's a lot of factors that go into a deer even getting to reach maturity. You know, it's not just us that's out there hunting them, you know. There's all kinds of other critters out there after them as well as, you know, as sicknesses and everything like that. So, uh, like you say, you might look over 50 bad tomatoes before you find the, the one that's ready to eat or not rotten. And same goes for deer, but it could, it could even be more than 50, you know, 
Um, oh. So, you know, when when you start to start to focus on looking for the mature deer, um, do you notice that they are, you know, usually on like western facing hills or slopes or you know or are they usually closer to like deeper type ravines or dry creek beds so that they you know have either escape route or or can be hidden really well or is it kind of you know once you find one that's that's where he is and you might find another one that's in a completely different spot (laughs) right You know, uh, hunting out here in South Dakota, it's definitely not like the mountains. You know, in the mountains, it's pretty obvious where the deer are going to feed, what slopes they're going to be on, where they're going to bed. Um, here, a lot of times, there's no really real rhyme or reason where these mule deer are bedding. A lot of times, you know, if it's a hot day, obviously they're gonna they're gonna bed up in shade somewhere, and it's mostly be under cut banks, uh, in deep brush. And I'm telling you what, Zach, some of these beds of these mule deer um, that we found, my wife and I, we found some beds where you can literally almost stand in the bed. And they've been using this bed for, who knows, hundreds of years. And it's literally two, three feet deep. They, you know, they, their ancestors from probably 200 years ago have laid in that same exact bed. And it's just, it's nuts. And you can glass from any vantage point and look into these nooks and crannies and you just will not see the deer. If you don't see them go in there or come out of there, you would never know they're there. And so early in the season when it's hot, we pay a lot of attention to obviously year round is, is feeding areas. But then uh, early season is looking for these, these places that offer that shade and the coolness. And as long as there's shade, they're going to be there. <clears throat> um, you start getting a little bit later into the season, starts cooling off. It gets a little bit tougher to hunt them because they necessarily aren't laying underneath those areas where where you can sneak and get within range. Now they're maybe laying on open, small open meadows out in the middle of a pasture, um, very little cover to sneak on them. And then you get into the late season, <clears throat> and late season obviously they're gonna. This is very true in late season they start betting on on the south facing slopes more because obviously in the winter time there's there's more sun um northwest wind there's um more break out of the wind on the south sides of these hills and and draws so really in the winter when it gets cold and brutal and there's snow that's about the only time i really notice where they're going to focus on one general area and where they're going to hang out bed and feed but gotcha. so really did I didn't really answer your question point pointly, but it seems like mule deer are going to be wherever they want to be out here. And there are right. certain things to look for, but not necessarily every time you go out, they know they're going to get, they're going to be in this spot. You know, they're going to be in that spot. And it's, gotcha. uh, it's a, it's a crapshoot sometimes really. Right. Getting on top of that vantage point or morning and, and catching them coming from feed and going to bed, trying to ambush them before they get to bed or wait for them to bed up is has been what's worked best for me. And, you know, when yeah. you do that, yeah. I shot Focusing South on Dakota this year. Exactly. You know, that was a perfect example. He was out in the middle of nowhere in places where generally I used to never look for mule deer. And here he was, bedded with young buck out in the middle of a pasture with very little cover to get to him. And so it, uh, it's all, all depends on the situation, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And, and before I get into that story and that stock and how it kind of, uh, unfolded, you know, cause like I said, a lot of people would look at that deer laying out there in the middle of that grass. Cause I remember the picture you posted and think how, like there's no way in hell I'm going to get out there to that thing, you know? Um, but quick question before that is, uh, 
when when you get up on a vantage point, what is the first thing that you look for? Uh, do you immediately start looking in the shade? Do you look closer to you and then start working your way farther away? Do you look for movement movement right away? Um, what it, what's something that you generally, you know, is the first thing that you start to look for from your vantage point? That is really easy to answer because the very first thing I look for is cactus. So I don't sit down and have to pick cactus out of my ass for weeks on end. <laughs> oh, that's so true. My wife sat in cactus about <laughs> two years ago and my little boy had to pick it all out. So that's a good one. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's funny that you say that my wife did the same thing this year. She, uh, I'm going on a, a whole different uh, avenue That's here, fine. but we'll get back to it. My wife, she went on her first uh, rifle antelope hunt this year, and we're sneaking, crawling through this tall grass, and I'm in front of her. She's behind me. She's got the the tag, and I sit down, and I'm watching this buck, and she comes up right next to me, curls her legs up underneath her, and sits down Indian style right on the cactus. Oh, but bless shit. her heart, she. She didn't move. She didn't get up. She didn't do anything. She made a great shot on that buck. And after that buck was, she knew the buck wasn't going anywhere. Then, you know, she had this very concerned look on her face. And, and to this day, we don't know, you know, public land, a lot of hunters out there, if anybody else got a show watching through their spotting scope or their binoculars or rifle scopes at my wife with her hands down to her knees and me pulling the cactus out of her butt. But it's, uh, it's pretty cool. We, we joke around and we laugh quite a bit. And we haven't quite determined that she might have nicknamed that buck cactus buck or something like that. I can't quite remember. But So, yeah, first thing I always do is look for cactus because more often than not, I've sat down on those things and never noticed them. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a but, solid... You know, Thing to look for first. <laughs> Absolutely. Any, anytime you're coming to a vantage point, though, you, you got to make sure you stay low and, and not just walk up to this vantage point and show everything down below you that you're there. So I try to be as sneaky as I can to get up on that vantage point first. And as soon as I get set in position, I look, do a quick scan close to make sure nothing's seen me and make sure there's nothing close by. And then I'll, I'll pick it apart and I kind of grid the area. I'll do a quick scan with my binoculars, with a spotting scope if I have to. And then we'll start breaking it up into grids and just start gridding it out. Um, paying attention to those areas that are more conducive for a deer to lay down at. Uh, and it's not always, they're not always going to be there, but the probability is a little bit higher. And uh, just start picking it apart. There's times all you see is, maybe just a, a flicker of an ear or just a tine sticking out of the grass or um, it, it, there's times where it, it gets pretty frustrating. And there's been quite a few times where I thought there was nothing there and I stood up to stretch because I thought, no, there's nothing here, you know, and only to see a, a deer stand up and bust me because I got complacent. Gotcha. So it, it again, preaching patience but there is a lot of patience behind glassing and looking for for those small things that you may not normally see yeah no it's funny that you bring that up because that 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 same thing happened to me this year in south dakota i was uh walking along a ridge line but i was down on i was i was walking east and i was on the north side of that ridge line because i I knew I wanted to glass everything on the south side of it. So I was doing great, doing great. And I get up to the point where I am wanting to glass. And rather than, you know, crawling over there, I was like, oh, it's dark enough. Nothing's going to see you. And I just stood up for just a second, you know, to step over top of that ridge and sit down. I looked down and there's deer running away. And I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's it's usually when you least expect it, and there's yeah. a lot of 
That and is so true. <laughs> there's been quite a few times I get, I get, uh, lose my patience or get complacent and I'll do just that. And it seems like every time I do that is when there happens to be a deer or an elk close by. That's just my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's the same here. And, you know, I don't get, I snuck into a deer in Idaho and well, I thought the deer was still there. I snuck in there, got to, I don't know, 25, 30 yards from where I had last seen him in his bed. And I sat there and I sat there and I told myself, do not do something stupid and ruin this. So I sat there for probably four hours and, uh, then I snuck back out of there, climbed up to my glassing point, glassed down there, and he was gone. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah, you know, took all that patience. And he wasn't even there, but I learned uh, quite a bit, honestly, even though the deer wasn't there. You know, I learned uh, how to calm myself down and, and make myself wait and everything like that. But <laughs> shit, it still sucked. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, it, uh, it's disheartening when you, you do everything you think you should be doing and then you do one thing and that's when uh, everything falls apart. Yes, yep. And my, uh, my wife does a great job of reminding me to slow down. Uh, get, that's awesome. I get in a hurry sometimes and she'll look at me and give me that look and I know what that look means. So. Yeah. She, that look (laughs) if looks could kill i know i know she's got a lot of different looks but there's some you just instantly know (laughs) (laughs) so Uh, it must be wife my wife has too (laughs) yeah i think they're all pretty probably pretty good at it but, you know, getting back to it, glassing from a vantage point like that is uh, if you're looking from one spot and you're not seeing anything, depending on what type of, type of terrain is in front of you, get up and moving left or right if you can and, and plop back down 50 yards away or even 30 yards away and look again. A lot of times that little bit different of an angle is enough to, to show you something that you didn't see before either. So you try not to get tumped. Just think that one spot where you sit is there's nothing there. You know, give it another opportunity. Move a little bit. Sit back down. Glass the obvious areas again before you move on and try another spot. And absolutely, it, you'll a lot of times you might put up something you wouldn't seen on the first time. And not only that is if you sit there, and this is really up in the mountains too. I find this more more conducive to that area is. When you're sitting up there and you're glassing, you might be glassing for an hour or more. And if you just get up, move yourself off that vantage point, stretch, maybe drink a little bit of water, have a granola bar, eat some jerky, and give your eyes a rest and get back at it again and, and start picking apart the train. It gives you that little bit of a break that you need sometimes to stay focused. Yeah. And that's, I, I agree that that's a, a big deal is, is the staying focused and like you'd mentioned before, not getting complacent and everything like that. Cause this, you know, if you, you know, you don't either grit it off or be slow and methodical about it or whatever, you know, it's just, uh, your, your prop chances are you're going to miss something. And I mean, obviously you're going to have lots of instances where you miss something, but if you, you know, if you have some sort of system or, or whatever else and uh, give it your best, give it your best shot, then you're at least less likely to miss something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so kind of, kind of walk us through, uh, you know, you, you located that buck. We saw the pictures on Instagram uh, out there in the middle of basically what looked like a wheat field. Um, obviously it wasn't, you know, there's rolling hills and everything like that. But when I say look like a wheat field, there's just grass, you know, <laughs> there's, there was yeah. nothing else. There wasn't a tree. There wasn't a big rock. I mean, uh, it, it was crazy. And then you went out there and you shot the damn thing, Jared. 
I just was like, <laughs> way to go, man. What, what did you, what did you like call up Harry Potter and rent his invisible cloak or what? But <laughs> well, so, I, I'll tell you my secret that a lot, of people, a lot of people don't know about me. And, um, I'm a fairly small guy. I'm pretty short. I will never deny that. People, when I meet for the first time, whether it's at the ATA or the SHOT Show or wherever it may be, when I shake their hand, they usually have a dumbfounded look on their face and they tell me, wow, you don't look that short in your pictures. So, <laughs> so a lot of people, height definitely size does make a difference because I guarantee my scrawny ass out there sneaking along on the ground is is a lot better off than somebody who's like my best friend who's is six four and two hundred twenty five pounds. I, it's a little bit easier to hide myself. Yeah, well, I I'm in the same boat. I'm only five six, so <laughs> I yeah. get it. Yeah, we're we're, <laughs> we're the same height. Yeah, we're we're same height then. But you know, it's. I, I will attribute a lot of it to size does matter. You can't deny that. You know, women always said that, but now it's, it's maybe it's true. Size does matter in some things, but maybe not. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> Holy hell. Jared just popped a joke on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like this side of you, but you know what? It's, so I've been bow hunting for 30 years, going on 31 years. And I look back to how I used to spot and stock back when I was in the early years and obviously was not near as successful as I am now. And it's not because I got shorter or anything, but it's definitely because I, I got more experienced. A lot of it is on the stock. If, if you have a, a deer that's bedded, slowing down and just taking your time i mean there's no rush if that deer is recently bedded he's going to be there quite a while and like for example that that deer we were talking about earlier um that i killed this year in south dakota and there wasn't a lot of terrain there sitting up on that vantage point i think it took us oh about an hour to turn that buck up we knew he went that direction and we checked all the obvious places. There wasn't any real big terrain features in front of us. It's more or less an open prairie with some rolling hills. And I finally spotted one of his velvet tines sticking up out of the grass. And that was almost when I was getting ready to move and try a different spot, thinking he moved on. So, you know, right back to that that glassing and sitting on the vantage point, that proves that the time put in the time. And, and if he's there, you're going to find him. But then, you know, this was a deer that I wanted my wife to go after. And we looked at it after we found him. We looked at, obviously, from as far away as we were, it's everything's different once you get down closer to the deer. But where we were sitting and we were looking, there was, a, there was one sagebrush, just a small, small thing of sage, I guessed, 40 yards from the deer. And if you could make it to that sage, um, you'd have a pretty pretty darn good chance at that buck. But the problem was, getting to that sage, you're pretty much in the view of that buck the entire time for 250 yards. So gotcha. you know what that, you know what that meant is a lot of crawling on your hands and knees, belly crawling at times, and and two weeks later you're still picking cactus out of your body from doing that stock. But you know we looked at that. And my wife's knee was bothering her, knowing she's going to have to be crawling on the ground a little bit. And we decided, you know, I would go on the stock just because it was one of those difficult stocks and and use my experience in the past and, and see if I could get it done. And when I left that vantage point, my wife stayed back behind the spotting scope. I honestly didn't think it was going to be a stock that would be successful because it looks so tough. And, you know, if you get a chance, sometime you can look at that video I posted. She stayed back up with the spotting scope, and she videoed me shooting that buck from about a mile and a half away. And <clears throat> there, it was not an easy feat. Getting to that deer was just that, a lot of crawling, a lot of hoping you don't come across a, a buzzworm on your way. And, you know, it, it didn't. 
Honestly, I would completely flip shit. If I was crawling along there and I crawled into a rattlesnake, I would, it could have been a 280 inch deer. I'd flip shit and get up and run like a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) I I did that in North Carolina on on a uh, antelope. I was stalking an antelope crawling across an alfalfa field and I set my bow down, you know, I was setting the bow in front of me. I was crawling. And I set my hand right on top of the rattlesnake, coiled up rattlesnake. Luckily, it was a cool morning. You know, he wasn't wasn't very fast moving, but yeah, it uh, it didn't take long for those antelope to run out of there because I jumped up screaming and jumping. And but luckily, that's been the only time that's happened to me. <clears throat> but it's, I think about it every time, you know, sneaking across the prairie and. And you never know where the heck those things are going to be. Yeah, but on, on that, man, that, on that I, talk, uh, I had the same thing kind of happen to me. I was filming a guy in Colorado and it was just cold enough that they weren't, that the snakes weren't really active. And I go, you know, we're just walking along, headed back. We're almost back to the vehicle and we're just BSing. And I stepped and I looked down right when my foot hit the ground and in literally six inches away, coiled up was a snake. Oh man, I jumped about three foot in the air and started yelling. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes you come unglued in a hurry, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I walked out into the garage this year. Here I am going on another tangent, but I walked out in the garage this summer. <laughs> And it was dark, and my first step down onto the concrete, and I stepped right on a snake. Uh. The feeling of a snake underneath your bare foot is not a fun one. And then not knowing what kind of snake it was in the dark, is I'm sure I did a pretty dang good rendition of a spider monkey on crack, but it, <laughs> I flipped on the left. Luckily, it was it was just a bull snake. But even bull snakes, they get pissed off enough. They sound like a rattlesnake at first, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty wild. But <clears throat> so yeah, back to the stock. I sorry, I keep going on all these different these oh, sprouts. I've been going on them on on tangents with you. So we're just we're just egging each other on. I think. <laughs> yeah. So um, when I was doing that stock, you know, I kept. Uh, before I could get down and actually start crawling to that deer, I tried different approach from about three or four different ways from the top of a rolling hill to see which way would be the best. And ultimately what it come down to is keeping that sagebrush between me and him and staying pressed to the ground and, and inching in on him. And when it all came together and I was able to get to, you know, I couldn't even range the deer because his antlers are sticking up out of the grass and getting a range when I'm sitting on my butt on the ground behind sagebrush is about impossible. But I was eventually uh, kept ranging him numerous times. And I don't know if I actually finally caught the top of his, his antlers and I got a range at 53 yards and I kept ranging the grass around him and was getting 47, 49, 49, 50 so i figured you know what i'm gonna shoot for 50 when he stands up and so then i sat there and and waited i didn't want to get any closer because i ran out of all cover and it was him and a smaller buck and in that situation i've tried doing different things in the past i've tried grunting i've tried bleeding i've tried throwing a rock and never really works out for me so when i get in those tight situations like that i just sit and wait, let that deer make the call. Let him stand up out of his bed completely calm and have no idea you're there and make that shot rather than try to rush it. Even if yep. you know, there's been times I've either made a noise or threw a rock and they stand up. Well, everything happens so fast. I, I put, jerk my bow back and I'm shaking and I never quite, I don't think, take enough time to settle my pin. And I'll probably miss that damn deer and make a bad shot. So yeah. sitting on them, let them do their thing. And that's what he did. The smaller buck started getting antsy and then he stood up. He was just going to get up in his bed and reposition himself and bed back down. And 
by the time he started getting up, that was that full draw and pin was settled and I had to wait for him to he was facing straight away and he turned to rebed and as soon as he turned court he was still quartered away, but enough to slip that arrow up in there and the rest was history, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I'm at, I actually uh I have the, the video pulled up right here in front of me and the thumbnail for the video is you about ready to start your draw cycle and uh, the one deer facing away, just like you're talking. So when you were, when you were on your way over to this deer and you're crawling, I've heard, uh, you know, Randy Ulmer say, you know, a lot of a lot of times people will get busted because they have the urge to keep looking above the cover to see if the animal is still there. So on your way to this deer, did you were you looking every once in a while to see if he was still there, or were you just basically stalking in faith, thinking, I gotta get to this bush. Once I get to the bush, that's when I'm gonna look. What was kind of going through your head for from that aspect? Well, for the, the lack of terrain features in this area, um, all I had to do is able to know that he was still there was just get up on my knees enough. And, you know, it, shoot, his, his eyes are two and a half feet below the top of his antlers. So if, if I stand up too far and his eyes can see me, I definitely did something wrong. But just just getting up above the vegetation enough to see his antlers is what I kept doing to make sure he didn't go anywhere. And gotcha. You know, I could see, I could see how Mr. Ulmer saying that is, yeah, people if they stand up too far, obviously the deer is going to see you. But you should never have to stand up that far because he's got the antlers on top of his head. Right. But you know, if there's right. those with him, it's a whole different story, I guess. But. And yeah, the other thing and I too think, is, I think people go ahead. My wife, she was back on the vantage point, <clears throat> and when I left, I told her, I said, if that buck gets up and moves and runs, and I don't know it, uh, just hold your hand up on that side and point that direction, so I know which way the the deer went. And so I'd I'd stop and I'd look, I'd keep glancing back at her about every. Well, I don't know, two, three minutes, I'd look back at her with the, with my binoculars and make sure that everything's still good. So, you know, I wasn't too worried on keep stare, getting up and looking to see if that deer was still there because I kept looking back at her and she kept, she wasn't holding the hand up one way or the other, which told me that still there. Yeah, yeah, that so makes perfect sense. And I, yeah, working and I with think, a partner you like, know, definitely helped. Yeah, working with a partner does help for sure. And I, I think when people get in the most trouble uh, looking along the way is when they're when they're stalking a deer, for instance, and they start doing that disco head bob. You know, they, they slowly start raising up there and they're like, oh, I can't quite see the antlers yet. So they start moving a little bit quicker side to side or something or whatever rather than just being real slow and methodical and moving until they see a, an antler tip or whatever else, they start to kind of get impatient. Cause I've been there, you know, like, huh, move real slow, real slow, real slow. Then I get to that point where I'm like, Oh, I should have seen him by now. I'm not seeing him. And then pretty quick, my movements are getting faster and I'm going side to side. They're getting faster and faster. And then I get just kind of looking right at me. Shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'll that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You know, it, it, people who read my articles or listen to my podcast, they'll always hear me, and they probably get sick of me saying it. But I always say, patience. You know, it's all about patience. But really, I mean, it's, it is. If you're not patient, you, things are going to go south. Yeah, exactly. I think. Uh... Uh, patience patience is king in in hunting in general but especially in bow hunting you know whether it's locating the animal making the stock being patient enough to draw at the correct time i mean patience is is so so critical uh and it's and it's generally a learning curve for everyone i mean i spent a and i don't have it down yet there's i don't i don't know that i ever will 
you know, but uh, the patience is something, especially in such a fast paced world that everyone's continually learning. And one of the hardest things I think about patients is, is learning when to be patient and when to be patient, but still move quickly, you know, because obviously there's times when walking slow or running, you know, if you're able to get over there quicker and run, you know, and you could do it out of sight or whatever, that's awesome. But knowing when to do what is, uh, is, is a hard thing to learn as well. Yeah, for sure. I am, I am quite a bit more, more aggressive when we hunt. Um, my wife, she'll look at me at times and say, why are you going so fast? And there's times where she's right. I need to slow down, but there's times when I know you have to be aggressive and you have to move fast because you have such a small window of opportunity. And it's just yeah, another one of those things that's that a comes really good with point. I don't, you know, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, you, you made a really excellent point there. What is, you know, obviously I know it's, it's very situational, um, but there's a few situations that come to my mind that I go, oh man, I need to hurry. Um, when you're spot and stalking mule deer, what's a few situations that come to your mind that you do need to hurry? You know, you, you can't hold back. It's, it's go time. So a lot of times that's when a, a deer is on the move and I'm trying to do an ambush. And let's say this, this deer is feeding across an open prairie. And there's two small hills with a small saddle, and he's wor- working across the top of these hills. When he goes down in that saddle, you have a very small window where you can actually take off running to close some of that distance um, before he, you see his antlers start coming over the rise again, and you have to slink back down and get pressed to the ground again. So that'd be one situation there when you know for a fact that that deer cannot see you because he's behind a terrain feature. There's times when I'll. I'll I'll rush things or, or move a little bit faster. If there's ever a time when the animal cannot see me and I know he can't see me, I'll, that's a lot of times where I'll, I'll speed up the process quite a bit because if that deer's on the move and you're trying to get to a certain point before that deer does, you have to use every opportunity you can. If you can get there a minute before that deer is going to get to that spot, you have a minute to calm yourself down and get ready for the shot. But if you're getting there at the same time the deer is, it's not going to go well for you. So right. it might be a different story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Difference from picking up a bloody arrow to uh, putting it back in the quiver, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Or, or not finding your arrow. <laughs> you know, oh. I, I hate arrows. I absolutely hate losing arrows. And if I shoot an animal and I cannot find my arrow, I will look for that arrow. And if I can't find it, I'll come back the next day. I'll come back the following year if I have to. <laughs> I can impressive. I can mark a, I can take on a map and I can mark where I've lost every arrow since I started bow hunting because I haven't lost very many of them. And it's very easy to remember the areas where there's still an arrow because it still bugs the crap out of me. There's been times I went back and I've looked for the arrow. I know it wouldn't be any good, but I don't know. Maybe I need closure. Maybe I got a problem. That OCD or that CDO kicking in. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. um, It depends. If, uh, If I don't have very many arrows left, then I look really hard. Uh, but if, you know, if I shoot at an animal early in the morning and the arrows lost and I'm just thinking to myself, well, I am, uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to hunting. I'm not going to waste my time looking for this arrow. Then it's like, yeah, nope, not going to look, but I, I don't know. I just, <clears throat> I, I probably should spend more time looking because <laughs> those things aren't cheap, you know? <laughs> Good Lord, they're not cheap. When I was up in North Dakota this last um, late season in December, the end of December, I was hunting with a buddy up there, and he took a shot at a buck. 
and the shot was downhill and the deer was on the other side of the hill. <clears throat> and, uh, I don't think he even looked for that arrow. I was like, <laughs> man, I, down there, I would have been scouring the whole side of that hill. It had to be sticking out of the side of the hill. Should have been easy to find, but he's like, yeah, I didn't really care for that arrow anyway. <laughs> I Fair wanted enough. to go find I wanted to go find it for him, but yeah, he was, he was all right. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, no, I, I think we are kind of in the same page, though. Uh, you know, I, a lot of the scenarios that you had mentioned where you would go faster uh, were a lot of the scenarios that I had mentioned or, or that, that I feel I would go faster, you know, especially, you know, when you're out of sight and you can just make up time. Uh, one time when I find myself going fast too is if I watch an animal go into a small group of trees. If I'm a long ways away and I watch an animal go into a small group of trees to bed and it might potentially be their first bed or I watch them bed down early and I know it's probably going to be their first bed. I will try to move quickly to say cut the distance in half or whatever else so that I can get over there and and relocate them and that way you know either they're still in a position and, and then i can plan the stock or i can you know be that much closer so when they do go into their final bed i'm <clears throat> i'm that much closer um i could that could probably potentially bite me in the butt but it hasn't yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> The uh, you know there's there's been times where I thought the animal couldn't see me and I've been moving fast to look up and see him staring right at me too. Oh, that's yeah. happened to me. Yep, one hundred percent. I agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. Well, wicked. So you had you had a pretty awesome season this year. I mean, every time I turn around, it looks like it looked like you were posting another another animal. I mean, how? How many how many you know, tags did you so, have this year, and how many did you fill? <laughs> I had eight tags this year, and I filled eight. It, uh, you know, being did gone you go all apply last for the season, lottery oh, too. <laughs> no, I, I could never win the lottery. I'm totally kidding, man. You, you work your ass off, so I. If there's anyone out there that's gonna, you know, fill eight tags and earn it, you're you're definitely one of those people. So congrats, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that, but I probably put too much pressure on myself to fill tags. In the 30 years of bow hunting, I've filled every tag I've ever had. But it's Whew. it at the end of when I fill that last tag, it's it's a lot of weight off my shoulders. You know, it, it's hunting and it's my passion. It's what I love to do more than anything, other than faith and family. But it's. That last tag, when I feel that last tag, or when I feel each tag throughout the season, it's weight off my shoulders. And there's people that say, well, how is it weight off your shoulders when it's something you love to do so much? And I I do put too much pressure on myself to fill tags, and, and that does maybe take away some of the fun in it. With every tag I feel, I have fun, but until they're filled, it seems there's times I can't sleep at night. I maybe get a little growly when I'm at home, but... And I don't know why that is. I don't know why I put so much pressure on myself to fill those tags. But then, you know, being deployed last year, I wanted to come home and I wanted to hunt hard and I wanted to get as many tags as I could and I wanted to fill them. And, you know, the freezer was empty because I was gone for a year. I didn't put the meat back in the freezer. We needed the, the meat for my family. And, and it's not just meat for just my family. You know, it's for my brother's family and, and my wife's parents and you know we share a lot of that meat with other people and there, there's people that say well why'd you kill more animals you don't need that much meat well i'm here to tell you zach i we ground up and processed over 250 pounds of venison last weekend and uh -huh. and we gave away just as much to family and friends and that will sustain us for a year and about that time it's running out it'll be next hunting season again so yeah, 
there's people that say you don't you don't need to hunt for the meat. You're right. I don't have to hunt for the meat. I can go to a dang grocery store and buy meat if I want, but that's not who I am. I am a hunter. I am, you know, I, I, I come from a long, yeah, I come from a long lineage of providers, and and that's something that we do. And so yeah, eight and every ounce of that meat went to went to somebody and. And, you know, it's the end of the season comes and that last tag is punched and January rolls around and we start processing all the meat. And it's, it's pretty awesome feeling. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, there's been times, you know, um, well, I haven't, I haven't been bow hunting for 30 years, um, <laughs> but. Are you uh, even 30 years old? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I didn't think so. But I wasn't gonna say that to be rude. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, getting old. <laughs> uh, but I. But I, I'll, I'll tell you this though: is I don't feel as old as I am. That's that's great. That's that's a good place to be in. You know, it really is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think I think back to when I was a kid, and I thought forty year old, forty years old was as old as dirt, and here I am at forty, and I can't quite figure out how that forty got here as fast as it did. Yeah, yeah, I, hey, that's part of life, and it's been a kick ass time, and and I enjoy life, and life is great, and life is great, and God is good, and you know, I live to see another year, and each day I wake up. And I'm able to be vertical and not horizontal it is a great yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I, I've <clears throat> this year I've I've filled a lot of tags as well, and and last year I filled quite a few. But that there's something that just feels good about a providing for your family, but b being able to provide for people in need. You know, I've. I've had years where, where buddies, they just, you know, whether work or whatever got in the way, they just, they didn't have time to go out and go hunt. And, and I was, I was able to help fill the freezer. Cause I mean, it's a lot of money to go buy that much meat. I mean, it's, it's a lot of money to go hunt also. Um, but if I, if I go to the mountain one day and I shoot a cow elk, you know, with the rifle and load it up, <clears throat> that's a that's a whole different that's a whole different thing than than going out on on an adventure hunt and you know with my bow and and stuff like that and going for multiple days obviously but right hey just like you every every bit of that meat we either we eat it or or it goes to a family in need or friends in need and and it's just it's cool being able to help them out when when they need it as well Absolutely. You know, it's, it's that feeling of being a provider is an awesome feeling. And, you know, that makes me want to talk about this quick is South Dakota this year, they, they uh, lifted the minimum age at which a child can rifle hunt or deer hunt for that matter. So my son who is seven and my daughter who is nine, he got to hunt this year for the first time. Oh, oh, that's wicked. They're not they're not pulling enough poundage to be able to archery hunt yet. And that's a passion that they wanna be able to do and they'll get there. But I remember telling the kids I picked them up from from school and they said, Guess what? You guys get the deer hunt this year with a rifle. And they couldn't believe that they're actually getting that chance. You know, they're seven, only seven and nine. How the heck are they getting to do that? So you know, I explained to them um, the process and, and uh, I told them, I said, you know, because you can hunt doesn't mean you're going to hunt. And they didn't quite understand that. I said, I'll make a deal with you. We'll go out, we'll shoot rifle. And they haven't shot a high powered rifle up to this point. And uh -huh. I said, we'll, we'll go out and shoot. And I said, if you can put 10 shots in that bullseye at a hundred yards, I will allow you to hunt this year. And we went out there 
and bless their hearts both and you know my daughter got the first opportunity because she's older and uh-huh. she did she put all 10 rounds in the bullseye at 100 yards and then my son he stepped up to the plate and he did the same exact thing oh, and it, as a father it was completely amazing to me and taking them out on their first hunts was by far nothing holds a candle to these two hunts over any other hunt that I've done probably in my lifetime, to be honest with you. And there's so many things that my dad used to say to me when, when I was a kid and a lot of those things now I understand why he said those things, but watching both of my children, um, take their first animal this year, they both took a white tail bill, um, seeing their faces and how excited they were and, and, seeing their emotions for the first time knowing they took life of an animal was was very powerful but the things that was so awesome is when we were processing beer and i let them each grind their own beer knowing that they provided for our family sitting down at the dinner table and eating a meal knowing that that was the animal they provided was it was out of this world just to see their satisfaction on their face and, and knowing that they can do it and, and seeing them become providers was, it's probably memories of the whole season. That's, that's incredible. I, I was, I took my son on a hunt in Georgia and uh, cause I have a good buddy there and bless that kid's heart. I mean, it was freezing cold, you know, and we, we practiced with, uh, we brought the crossbow and we practiced and we practiced and we practiced. I mean, he got where he was hitting bullseyes at 30, 35 yards with the crossbow and, uh, said, okay, you know, the, the deer should be about 20. So you, you know, you're shooting plenty far. And, uh, we also, uh, when we got there, uh, it was rifle season two and, uh, my buddy had a rifle that we went out and we shot a couple times and, you know, he hit where he was, where we needed him to hit every shot. And, uh, so we brought the rifle with us as well, just in case. And we sat there <laughs> the very end of December in the first couple of days in January and we froze. And we didn't see a single deer. I felt so bad. You know, here's this, here's this five-year-old not seeing anything. And the next day, excited, getting his clothes on quick. You know, we started taking blankets. It was so cold. <laughs> and we didn't see a single deer. I felt so bad because he tried so hard, you know. You know, it's it's a sensitive subject when you're taking a kid out to hunt for the first time um, because you want to make it fun and you don't want to ruin it for them. You don't want them to have a bad experience. And, you know, there's a couple of times I question having the kids out this year and and let them make the decisions and let them be more part of the hunt really, really helped out a lot, too. That's awesome. Yeah, it, there, so there, there, it was a, it was a year of a lot of firsts. You know, both my children, they both got to shoot their their first deer, and then my yeah. wife shoot her first antelope with a rifle, and then I took a guy on uh, in South Dakota here on an elk hunt, and he's not much of a hunter per se, and he probably spent a thousand dollars on clothing and boots and everything to hunt for fifteen minutes of the season. <laughs> but <laughs> seeing seeing his excitement I called in two bulls within 15 minutes of season starting and he shot the second bull the bigger bull and just a beautiful six by seven and and again you know it doesn't ma- matter so much age just seeing somebody take their first animal it's very addicting to get to see that yeah 100 percent. i could not agree with you more um and it and it means so much especially you know it i like watching any kids get involved but man when it's yours it's it means so much yeah yeah for sure 
Yeah, it's pretty. Awesome. It's cool that you had a whole bunch of firsts this year because I had we had a whole bunch of firsts as well. Um, this is the first year that that my wife she shot her first bull elk, uh, awesome. and yeah, it was super cool. And she was, let's see, so that was October, and she just had a baby in December. So you know, six six months pregnant, basically six and a half, <laughs> seven. But- yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. He's he's quite the little guy. And then uh, it was also her first, you know, she had shot a mule deer with her bow previous year, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was more of a, hey, there's a deer, they're headed over to the hay field, let's get in front of them and shoot one. You know, but this year we saw the buck bedded, we snuck in there at 35 yards and we waited and waited and he stood up and he walks out there about 51 and I'm filming the whole thing and she just hammers this deer, you know? Um, so it was, it was a little bit, you know, as you know, that that's, it, it's all hunting, but that's more of a, I don't know. I, I, she seemed more proud of it, I guess is the best way to put it. I, you know, it's all hunting, but she seemed a lot more excited about the hunt where she had to really try hard and stock it and things like that, as opposed to let's go over here and, and wait for these deer, you know, she just, uh, but it was, it was super cool. And she made a great shot. He only went about 60 yards and piled up and it was, it was awesome. That's awesome. But absolutely. Yeah. So, so I guess now that season is kind of over, except for those lucky SOBs that are hunting in Arizona right now, I wish I was there. Um, (laughs) what uh what does what does your off season kind of look like i mean i don't think you really have an off season but let's let's go with more was what does the slow part of your season look like (laughs) well i go through withdrawals the minute i feel that last tag even though it's a lot of weight off the shoulders i start going through withdrawals because i'm not out shooting bow and i've been antsy wanting to shoot bow or shoot rifles so you know, I passed some of that time. I'm not a huge predator hunter by any means, but I, I sure do enjoy going out and calling coyotes. Um, you know, they have a mountain lion season that's open here right now. I, I don't really get into the mountain lion hunting a whole lot. I always say I want to do it, but I, I don't. You know, I've and, never done it. And that's something I do want to do someday, but I just, I guess, spend so much time in the fall hunting your butt off, and it's kind of nice having. January come around and you don't do a whole lot. It's, you know, processing that meat, making that sausage and jerky. And we really enjoy doing that. Uh, go out, call coyotes here and there. Um, I like taking my black labs out and they help uh, lure coyotes in. It's kind of fun to watch. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. It's really cool getting to see. And then, uh, you know, it's, uh, I look forward to the seasons, you know, turkey season isn't that far down the road. And so I take my bows, I reevaluate the bows, look at the strings. I replace my strings every year. Um, even if it's not needed, I like, I like the peace of mind of having new threads on there again. So I reorder, reorder strings, uh, retune all my bows, um, maybe rebuild some arrows if needed, Mm -hmm. if I can't find those that I lost. But generally, I find them. <laughs> I did break a lot of arrows this year, unfortunately. Um, I did too. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I reevaluate the bows if I have one of the new bows get in. I set up the new bows and and get those tuned and start shooting when I can. Um, I pull out all my bow, all, all of my bows. I obviously I just said that. Um, now clean up my rifles. And then I go through inventory of all my hunting gear, go through all my cryptic, um, replace what is worn, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be replaced. Um, always, always refining and retuning my hunting gear. Um, this didn't work last season, not going to use that this year. Or, you know, each year I'm trying to improve my hunting kit, if you will. And uh, yeah, always thinking forward to the next season that comes around the corner and in preparing for that so that's wicked cool what uh what what are some of the the states that you start looking at 
and doing research first. I mean, obviously, it'd be the states that, you know, the the, the application season opens uh, or the earliest. But, uh, you know, what what are a few of the states that <clears throat> that you like to go out and do research and, you know, you like to go hunt them or are there any that you that you try and hunt annually or anything like that? You know, I, I don't put in for a lot of different states, you know, and I should be, you know, I'm 40 years old and I, I should have hunted a lot more places than I have. You know, I've never set foot in Idaho. I've never set foot in, in Utah, New Mexico, um, Colorado, Nebraska, you know, those are all states I should be hunting already and I haven't. So they are on my bucket list to start doing some research into those states but i always stick to my tried and trusty montana wyoming north dakota and south dakota and you know north dakota application season is open already um for archery so that's on my radar uh south dakota being my home state obviously i know that i'll put in for those when they come open uh wyoming is open right now um for limited entry, it's really hard to draw the units I want. It's going to take, it looks like, even 10 years or more now. And the last two tags I had for elk in Wyoming was uh, one took six years, the other took seven years to draw. Um, Dang. I'm to, yeah, I'm at three years preference, and I'm starting to think maybe I should start putting in for those general areas and not holding gotcha. up for the limited entry. Because, shoot, I could be 50 by the time I draw that tag again. So. I'm starting to do a little research on general areas in Wyoming. Um, my general areas in Montana um, comes through for me every year. Uh, thinking about the breaks this year in Montana, but if that doesn't come to fruition, I know that that general tag has always been good for me. And you know, having having children at home and and a full-time job uh, unfortunately i can't put in for all the tags i'd like to or all the states i want to get to so i have to be pretty selective right. of how they come together and and i'm hoping fingers crossed that this is the year that i draw an elk tag in south dakota i have 14 and 15 years preference points for archery and and rifle so i'm i'm due to draw that tag uh for elk hopefully it's this year so i Montana is going to be an archery elk hunt. Uh, Wyoming, I'll probably just do uh, preference points this year um, for elk. And then uh, Montana for mule deer like I always do. Uh, I have four preference points for in Wyoming. Uh, I've been contemplating going on a, a backcountry mule deer hunt again. But I think we might table that another year uh, when my wife can go with me. And then I've been... cool. And then our oldest daughter will be graduated. Then we don't want to miss out a lot of time on her senior year, of course. So yeah, yeah, we might sure. skip that backcountry mule deer hunt over, over on the, um, up in the the mountains and of Wyoming until next year. Uh, building my points in Colorado as well for mule deer and elk. Um, just kind of buying my time, I guess. To, uh, when will be a good year for me to put out, put in and go on those hunts. But gotcha. at the same time, I got to remember I'm not getting younger and those mountains aren't getting any shorter. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I guess if anything, they're probably getting taller, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting shorter. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's the other thing, too, is my kids, when they start hunting more, I'm going to start hunting less. As they start to hunt more, I'll start hunting less, too, because I want to see right. them and and you know i've killed some great elk mule deer whitetail antelope and i feel like i've accomplished quite a bit in the hunting world i, I don't have anything to prove to anybody i've proved what i wanted to prove to myself and and now it's getting to the point where i want to be there with my kids and see them start their their hunting out and help them along the way so will i call it maybe a semi-retirement when they start hunting yeah maybe but I'd like to think when I'm in my nineties, I'm still out there doing it. So we'll see, we'll see what the future holds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, cause I think about the same way with my son and everything like that. And I, I think about the day that he's able to start going with me more and, 
uh, I mean, he's been going with that. I mean, he, he went on a elk hunt where we camped out two nights and walked about 14, 15 miles and he was only four years old. So, you know, he, he can go, <laughs> that is for sure, you know, but with school and everything like that, and, uh, you know, depending on how cold it is, not that I don't think he's tough enough, but I don't know if I want to put him through that. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my kids, my two young ones, they're itching to go on an elk hunt and I've had them in elk camp before, but they have never, they're, you know, they're only at that time. They're only, they were only, uh, six and eight. Um, pretty hard to take them on an elk hunt, you know, but every year they ask me, dad, when do I get to go on an elk hunt? And <laughs> I can hardly wait for that time, you know? Right. So TikTok. 100%. Yeah, exactly. TikTok is for sure. But well, Jared, I, uh, I appreciate it a bunch and it would be, it'd be awesome to, uh, to have you on again and dive into bows and what you do as far as, you know, tuning goes. So like walk back tuning or paper tuning or bear shaft or whatever you do. And then, uh, talk about your arrows and your arrow build and, you know, you know, why, what your fletching looks like, you know, whether it's offset or helical or none or whether you, heck, you know, you're probably a great shot. Maybe you don't even use fletchings. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would like to, I would like to talk about that because I look back to how I first started shooting bow and setting up my bow out on the farm and compared to what it is now and how I got it done back then 30 years ago. I, I'm not quite sure how. But that's all stuff we can talk about. It's pretty comical how I how I used to shoot bull compared to now. Yeah, you and me both. I I mine is comical as well. So that that might honestly make for an excellent podcast. We could kind of dive into where we began and and kind of how we've transformed to now. Absolutely, I'd like it. Well, perfect. Well, thanks again. Hey, thank you, Zach. You have a good night. Thank you for tuning in to the show. It means a lot to us. But seriously, though, I really appreciate your ear. And it would mean the world to me if you would rate our podcast. If you didn't like it, one star it. But if you did, a five is even better. Don't forget to comment, like, share, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Some other podcasts that you should definitely check out are... Eastman Elevated with Bride and Barney. And Hunt Harvest Health with Ryan and Hillary Lampers. And a special thanks to Maven Optics, Six Sight Gear, Dark Energy Tech, Shield Mountain Outdoors, The Outdoor Insiders, Iron Mind Hunting, Valkyrie Archery, and Gannett Ridge Sporting Equipment.